Well, it's great to be with you again this weekend. For those of you who are watching at home online, we're so glad that you're in here with us and you're watching with us. For those of you here in the room, we're going to be celebrating communion together at the end of our time today. And so if you did not receive a set of the communion elements when you came in, if you would like a set, um, just raise your hand up high. Um, Don't be embarrassed. It's okay. I forget mine all the time. Um, Just raise your hand up high and a member of our host team, they will be more than happy to bring those to you right now. So last weekend we began this brand new series together called Hindsight is 2020. And throughout the course of this series, um, what what we're talking about is that uh, given all that we've seen and given all that that we've all experienced, given um, everything that's changed and everything that, that we've been through, um, given all of those things, if, if we actually want to move into 2021 better um, and, and not simply bitter, right, then we're going to each pause and kind of ask ourselves the, the questions, um, what have I learned, what have we learned, and what do we actually want to carry forward? We said the reason um, why it's so important to do this, even when we don't feel quite ready to, it is because a faith-filled response to pain and suffering, it actually has the power to redeem pain and, and suffering. And in order to, to guide us through all of this, in order for us to, um, to kind of see this being played out, um, we've, um, we've looked at the, uh, the first century church in the book of Acts, and we've seen how they dealt with the, the trauma uh, as well as the drama that came from a whole series of seemingly random and unexpected events, including a pandemic. Um, Luke takes us through all of this beginning in Acts chapter 11. And throughout these events, we've learned a whole bunch of very interesting, but uh, much more importantly, um, very instructive characteristics of the early church, which absolutely apply to the church and to our church today. The first of which we actually learned way back at the end of our four campaign in November in Acts chapter 11, when we saw um, that when, um, when a disaster struck, when a disaster struck, then these early followers of Jesus um, back in Antioch Um, Their first instinct wasn't to try to go and figure out what it is that God was up to. Instead, they focused on what it is that they should do in light of and as a response to everything that was happening in their world. Specifically, um, we saw how they asked three really critical questions, um, which is simply this. Who is at risk? How is it that we can help? And who should we send? Because these Jesus followers in Antioch, when they heard that this famine was going to spread through the Roman Empire, um, they, they knew that their, their fellow brothers and sisters, their fellow followers of Jesus over in Jerusalem, who were already suffering, they knew that this famine was going to hurt them the most and be the most severe for them. And so they knew um, that they would have to help. And so in a history-making, first-of-its-kind, ever-any-place kind of a move, um, these first followers of Jesus in Antioch, they began to immediately collect funds for a group of people that they had never met, people who lived in a part of the world that they would never visit, and a group of people whose culture was nothing at all like theirs. And we said, where in the world did this history-making, socially and politically incorrect um, behavior come from? It came from the recognition that God, that He so loved the world that He gave. And so, so they gave. 
They, they gave because that's what Jesus had done for them. Jesus had given to them, so they wanted to give as a response of how they had been loved by Jesus. Because Jesus said that, they, that his followers, that they um, shouldn't just give to people who could return the favor. They shouldn't just give to people who acted like them or who looked like them or who believed like them. No, Jesus said that his followers, they should give to everyone. They should give to Samaritans and to Romans. Um, they should give to Gentiles. Um, that Jesus even wanted his followers to give to their enemies. And so they gave because that's what love required of them. And then last week in Acts chapter 12, we discovered um, the faith. We actually came face to face with the faith of, of this group of followers of Jesus in the city of Jerusalem, um, when they were confronted with random violence, um, with tragedy, with persecution. And, and what we saw in their response was completely unnatural because, because they actually turned to God for comfort, even though they were absolutely convinced that if God wanted to, that he could have prevented those tragedies from happening in the first place. And so like us, they wondered why, but they kept believing and they kept praying. And even though things didn't always add up and even though things that they experienced didn't always go the way that they want them to and even though they didn't even always make sense, they maintained hope. They maintained hope even when they didn't have explanations. Not because they were crazy, but because their leader, Peter, had also personally experienced tremendous amounts of suffering and persecution, and, and Peter reminded them that their hope was not in vain because their hope was actually anchored to an event, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And so what have, have we learned and what have I learned so far? Well, pandemics, political upheaval, religious persecution, violence, tragedies, Right? These are not simply the storyline of 2020. The followers of Jesus have been living with and they have been living through these kinds of events literally since the very beginning. And the entire time it has always been their, their death-defying confidence in and trust in their Heavenly Father fueled by the proof of the resurrection and the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, that's the reason why um, in our world today the Roman Empire is long gone. But today in our world, it's the reason why there are millions and millions of churches on every continent, in every country, even in most communities. And to the degree that our faith is anchored to the same event that anchored the faith of these first followers of Jesus, then we too can live with hope. We too can live with hope even when we don't have explanations. We always have a good reason to have hope, the Apostle Peter would say. And so when we left off together last week, King Herod had locked up Peter. He had thrown him into prison, and yet Peter um, was miraculously released from prison. As soon as he was released, he went back to the home uh, of John Mark, a home that he had been to many times where he knew the other followers of Jesus, where they would be gathering together and praying for Peter. And Peter wanted them all to know that he was now safe. And so in order to, to not put them in any more danger than they were already in, Peter decides to sneak off and to leave the city quietly at night, but he leaves them with these instructions. He says this, he says, tell James, this is Jesus' brother James, tell James and the other brothers and sisters about all of this, all of the things that happened, and then Peter left for another place. And Luke doesn't tell us where it is that Peter went, 
Um, But history does. History tells us that Peter lived for about another 10 years. During those 10 years, he was arrested repeatedly. He was tortured multiple times. And finally, he was arrested for the last time in Rome. And while Peter was there, he dictated um, his experiences of the life and the teaching of Jesus to his traveling companion, the man known as John Mark, who who we just simply know as Mark, which is why we have the Gospel of Mark today, because really it's a record, the Gospel of Mark is a record of Peter's experiences as he followed Jesus. Now, in addition to the Gospel of Mark, we also have two other documents that Peter dictated, at least two. Um, They're known as First and Second Peter, and these documents were written to Jewish followers of Jesus who had been scattered all throughout the Roman Empire as a result of this persecution that we've been learning together uh, about over these past several weeks. And so I want to kind of give you a picture of all this, and then we'll, we'll take off together for today. So picture this. This persecution begins in Jerusalem with all these Jewish uh, followers of Jesus, and because of this persecution, they're scattered all throughout the empire. And all of a sudden, in all these various parts of of the Roman Empire, these little house churches begin to pop up everywhere, but nobody knows quite what to do with these things. Because these followers of Jesus, they're, they're not Jewish, but they're not pagan, right? They worship the Jewish God, but they worship Him on the wrong day of the week. They form um, their own little communities, but they're not exclusive and they're not elitist in any way. Um, in fact, they actually, they actually go out of their way to invite other people in and to, to invite other people to join them. And perhaps strangest of all, these, these, these little communities of Jesus followers, they actually go out of their way to care for the people that nobody else was willing to care for. They were the kind of people, it would seem, um, that everybody would want as their neighbors. Like, why would, you, why would you persecute people like this? But see, here is the problem. There is one thing that these first century followers of Jesus, there is one thing that they would not do, and that was to acknowledge or to sacrifice to the local gods. Because, because in ancient days, um, adding a new god, right, not a problem. But ignoring the existing gods big problem. The last thing that that people um, living on the edge economically and physically, the last thing that they ever wanted to do was was to upset the gods. And the Roman gods, they they were famously fickle, and they were very easily angered. And so maintaining the the favor of the gods was literally a, a national security issue for Rome. If too many Roman citizens um, ignored the Roman gods to go chasing after this new, this new Jesus God, then it would only be a matter of time. It would only be a matter of time until the Roman gods withdrew their favor. And so, as these Jewish followers of Jesus began to spread all throughout the empire and move into these different regions and cities and, and villages, um, the, these, um, these Romans, these, these, their Roman neighbors began to blame anything and everything that was negative um, that was happening in their neighborhood or in the empire on them, whether it was an earthquake or a flood, a famine or a plague, even military defeats. Because after all, What hasn't changed in 2,000 years is that when things begin to go bad, 
we look for someone or someones to blame. And the last place that we ever look is in the mirror, right? And these ancient people, the truth is that they were no different than us. And so Peter knows this, and he knows that because of this, these followers of Jesus, wherever they end up in the empire, they're going to be in in very precarious positions. And so Peter, he writes to these followers of Jesus scattered all throughout the empire to help them evaluate their experiences so that they move forward better in spite of them and not simply bitter because of them. And so last week we looked at a portion of Peter's first letter um, where Peter assures all of us as followers of Jesus that the suffering that we experienced, the suffering happening in our world, the suffering that was happening in their world, that wasn't because God was angry at us, it's not because we did something wrong necessarily. Peter says, no, our suffering, your suffering, our response to suffering, that is in fact a tool, right, that God is going to use to draw people to himself, And speaking for you, speaking for me, I think it's safe to say, isn't it, that all of us, right, you two at home, we would prefer that God would find a different tool, right, for us to use. But see, Peter isn't wrong, is he? Because isn't it true that maybe for you or for someone that you know, maybe for a family member or a friend, isn't it true um, that that you've actually been drawn to faith or back to faith after watching someone you know with faith navigate a tragedy or a difficult season of life, maybe even an addiction of some sort? And so Peter, Peter isn't wrong, is he? Peter says our suffering, right, the suffering that you're going through right now, the suffering these first century followers of Jesus that they're going through, this uncertainty that we're going through, um, these difficult times, they are in fact a tool that God can and will use to draw people to himself. This is how Peter said it. We saw this last week. He tells us this. These sufferings, right, these sufferings, they have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, right? In other words, Peter is saying, listen, don't, don't miss this. If you get this right, if you get this experience that you're in right now, if you get this right, people will have no room to doubt. People will have no room to question the authenticity, the genuineness of your faith. Your faith, he said, which is of greater worth than gold because gold perishes, Gold perishes. Yes, it is refined by fire, but ultimately, gold perishes. And so these sufferings that you're going through right now, those will result in something. Peter says they're going to result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Right? In other words, this was actually Peter's way of saying something that Jesus once said when Jesus said this. He said, let your light shine. Right? Let your light shine before others so they may actually see your heavenly Father and see your good works and glorify or acknowledge or look up to and, and notice your Father in heaven. But, right, and here's where we're going today, 
not only did Peter write to explain and contextualize the suffering that these first century followers of Jesus were going through, but Peter also gives them something to do, right? Something to do while they are suffering. Something to do while they're navigating the complexities of simply being a follower of Jesus in an unbelieving world. Something to do while they're suffering simply because they are a follower of Jesus. And so Peter would say, while you're suffering, while you're being misunderstood, while you're being mistreated, while you're being mischaracterized, there are some things that you should do while that's happening, and there are some things that you should not do, Peter would say. And see, once again, what Peter tells us is absolutely not natural, but it is absolutely the difference between moving forward better and moving forward bitter. This is what Peter says to us in 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. He says this, he says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, and since you are all following Christ, Peter would say, therefore, right, arm yourselves also with. Literally, he's saying, I want you to go out and find this. I want you to go out and equip yourself with this. I want you to go out and find this tool, find this item. While you're suffering, while you're being mistreated, I want you to arm yourself, Peter says, with the same attitude, right? The same perspective, the the same way of thinking that Jesus had. In other words, he's saying, I want you to consider Jesus' approach to suffering, and and I want you to uh, ask yourself the question, how can I adopt the approach that Jesus had to the situation I'm in right now? And and Peter, he doesn't leave any of this to our imagination. In fact, he gets painfully specific with us. In in verse number 8, he continues and he says this. He says, above all, Above all, while you're suffering, while you're navigating the complexities of being a follower of Jesus in an unbelieving world, when you're blamed for anything and everything that goes wrong, above all, Peter says, that is priority number one, above all, while you're suffering, love each other deeply, unwaveringly, unceasingly, Peter says. Right? It's like, okay, Peter, come on, time out. What, what, what does this have to do, what does this have anything to do with what we're going through right now? I mean, Peter, what in the world does this have to do with my suffering? What in the world does this have to do with, with, my, with me being persecuted right now? And Peter says, well, listen, I'll tell you. Because this, this kind of love This unique Jesus brand of love, Peter would say, because it it covers over a multitude of sin. And see, his point is this. Sin will always divide you, but love will unite you. Loving each other the way that Jesus loved you will unite you in this time of uncertainty. And Peter would say, listen, when you're suffering, you can't afford to be divided, right? And you're not loving them in order to make them more like you. No, Peter would say, listen, you're loving them in order to see them the way that Jesus sees them and you. And you need each other now more than ever, Peter would say, in this season of suffering. 
While you're being mistreated, he says, while, while you're being persecuted, love each other deeply and do not let anything divide you, right? And then he gets painfully specific and he tells us exactly what that means. He says, offer, verse 9, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling, right? In other words, Peter is saying, okay, when you see someone, listen, when you see someone who's in need, you see a brother or a sister in need, um, whether it's food or it's shelter or it's a place to stay, if they have any kind of need whatsoever, Peter would say, I want you to go and I want you to provide for that need and I want you to take them in the, we, the way Jesus took you in. He continues, while you're suffering, while you're, you're navigating all of this uncertainty, while you're, um, you're tempted to try to circle the wagons, right, and just focus only on yourselves, Peter would say, each of you, right, each of you, verse 10, each of you should use whatever gift he or she has received to serve others as faithful stewards, right, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms, <laughs> to which it's like, okay, wait, Peter, do you understand that I don't know that I can take care of myself right now? Peter, do you understand that because of the situation that we're in, I don't know that I'm going to have enough to provide for my family right now? Peter, isn't this a lot to ask right now in the middle of everything that we're going through, in the middle of a pandemic? To which Peter would say, Joe, you're, you're right. You're, you're right. This is a, a lot to ask. I am asking a lot. I have asked a, a lot. But, but the Father asked a lot of the Son on your behalf. Because while you were still a sinner, Joe, Christ died for you. And see, here, here's the good news, Peter would say. I'm not asking you to die for anyone. I just want you to love them deeply. Offer them hospitality. And serve them faithfully. Love people, Peter would say, in such a way that they look up. And see, here's the amazing thing, right? Here's the amazing thing. We, we know this from history, right? This is exactly what these, these first century followers of Jesus, this is exactly what they did. They did exactly what Peter, exactly what Jesus instructed them to do. And by doing so, they actually raised the dignity of the people who were around them. Because in the midst of the misery and the poverty and the illness that characterized most ancient cities and villages, um, in the early centuries, these communities of Jesus followers, they provided an oasis, right? They provided an oasis of compassion and generosity and mercy. And see, compassion and mercy and generosity, those things are self-evident to us. But, the, but they were absolutely so countercultural to, to the people of this day and to their culture. But they embraced it because Jesus demonstrated it. Because while yet they were still sinners, right? Christ died for them. A God actually died for them. And see, it wasn't his threats that led them to repentance. 
as the Apostle Paul would go on to write. In fact, it was his kindness. It was his kindness that led them to repentance. Now, this change, right, this, this immense cultural shift, this was probably most evident when a whole series of epidemics um, swept through the Roman Empire, basically decimating um, most of the empire. Entire cities, entire villages were turned into mass graveyards. In fact, so many regions of of the Roman Empire, they were actually abandoned for a generation um, because people believed that the the illness or whatever was causing all of this death, somehow it, it resided in the land physically. At the peak of one of these epidemics in in Rome, more than 5,000 people a day were dying just in the city of Rome. And this went on for months, day after day. And when the disease broke out, the pagan priests, the civic leaders, the, the wealthy people, they all fled for the countryside. This is history. But many followers of Jesus, they actually chose to stay because they literally, they literally lost their fear of death. And when they stayed, they cared for one another. And consequently, these communities of Jesus followers, they actually fared better. They actually did better than their unbelieving neighbors. But see, they didn't stop there. They took what Peter said about hospitality to an entirely different level, a level that no one expected. And then they went out and they cared for their unbelieving neighbors whose families had left them behind. Neighbors who in many times actually didn't want to have anything to do with these Jesus followers because they refused to sacrifice to the Roman gods and insisted on worshiping a resurrected Galilean. And these astonished, right, these astonished, unbelieving men and women, they were stunned by the compassion and the mercy of this strange and yet powerful faith. The generosity of these strange and yet compassionate people. In fact, it was in A.D. 251, 251 A.D., when being a Christian was still a capital offense in the Roman Empire, it was in A.D. 251 that a man by the name of um, the, the Bishop, um, Bishop Dionysius of Alexandria, right, he actually wrote a tribute as an outlaw himself, as a leader in the church. He wrote a tribute to the men and women, the followers of Jesus who, 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 who stayed behind during the peak of one of these outbreaks to care for their unbelieving neighbors, the unbelieving men and women of their community, who in many cases gave up their lives to care for these people. This is what he said. Most of our brothers and sisters showed unbounded, right, here it is, unbounded love. They loved deeply. And they showed loyalty, never sparing themselves, thinking only of one another. Don't miss this. Heedless of danger. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need, and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life. The best of our brothers and sisters lost their lives in this manner. Now, here's why this is so profound, and here's why this is so important for us to understand and to realize today. 
These men and these women, right, they did not die for what they believed. They died because they acted on what they believed. This is why what Jesus taught so often is so incredibly important for us to understand, that application, right, application is what always makes the difference, application is what in fact gets noticed. This is why it's so critically important, especially for us in our world today, not to simply believe the right things, but to act on what it is that we say we believe. We must love courageously. We must love selflessly, Peter would say, Jesus would say. Because listen, this selfless love of these first century followers of Jesus, it became impossible for the unbelievers around them to, to, to ignore. In fact, they took note. These followers of Jesus, they showcased a level of generosity and compassion that not only got the attention of their unbelieving neighbors, but eventually... Eventually, it actually grabbed the attention of everyone in their culture who had gotten tired and who had grown weary of the constant pursuit of greed, a culture that, frankly, just reflected the values of their gods. Because the pagan gods, they didn't care about what happened to people. They didn't care if people suffered. The pagan gods, they were simply greedy for sacrifice. They threatened war and famine and plagues if their sacrifices were not met. But the God of Jesus, the crucified God, the nailed God, as people would later go on to describe him, he was different. He actually came to this earth to die for the people of his kingdom. And so consequently, the people of his kingdom, they in turn took care of those who could not care for themselves. And see, listen, what began as a, as a disenfranchised, persecuted minority, it influenced the majority by refusing to employ the tools of the kingdom of this world. Right? Instead, they employed the, the, the tools, they used the tools of their king. And the world changed. The world moved forward better. See, this is so incredibly important for us to understand because, because long before there was a, a Bishop Dionysius of Alexandria, long before he wrote that tribute, um, back in the very beginning when Peter gave these instructions to these first followers of Jesus to practice hospitality and generosity and to love deeply, right, these things were not a strategy for change. This was not some way to start a revolution. It wasn't a way to topple an empire. I mean, Peter did not. In fact, he could not. He could never envision Rome capitulating to Jesus. Are you kidding me? I mean, when Peter wrote this, Rome was winning. And from Peter's perspective, he had no reason to think that, that Rome wouldn't always win. Peter didn't see compassion and virtue um, as a way to, to influence or to change an empire. For, for Peter, compassion and, and kindness, hospitality and love, right? those things were just simply the teachings of Jesus. That's all they were. Jesus' followers were told to be generous and compassionate, not to try to gain something for themselves, Peter would say, because, or, or to win something, because they had already won. 
They had already been given something that could not be taken away. They had been given, as Peter said, in God's great mercy. They had already received, they've already been given a brand new birth into a living hope that cannot be taken away through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, an inheritance that cannot perish or spoil or fade. And so, therefore, Peter says, live. Live as if this were true. Move forward, right? Live knowing that you have received God's incredible gift of eternal life, that you have received His gift of forgiveness, forgiveness from sin, forgiveness from bitterness, forgiveness from rage, right? That's always better. Next week, um, we're going to kind of shift a little bit, and we're going to begin um, the second part of this series, and we're going to look at the other character that we're studying in all this, the character from the Old Testament. Um, but in the meantime, during the course of this week, I, I want to highly recommend to each of you um, that you take some time and you read this, um, this letter from Peter, First Peter. Um, it's short. Um, it's an easy read. It'll probably take you less time to read than we've, than we've been together today, uh, and it's incredibly timely. Um, and in, in this letter, when Peter ends, he, he says something to these first followers of, of Jesus um, that, that's kind of subtle. Uh, in fact, many people just kind of miss it. Um, but it's also really strange, and I don't want you to miss what it is that he's saying when, when he writes this. And so when he ends um, his letter, he says this in chapter 5. He says, With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, in other words, I didn't actually write this, I dictated this, and Silas wrote it all down. I've written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying you, to you that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. And then in the very next verse, he, he says something um, that is a little, sounds a little strange, um, but, um, but remember, Peter is on the run when he's writing this. He doesn't want anyone to know where he is or who he is with in case um, his document falls into the wrong hands. And so he ends by simply saying this, She, who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Now, when you read this, of course, the first question is, like, who in the world is she, right? And Babylon? I mean, why in the world would Peter be in Babylon? By the time Peter writes his letter, um, Babylon is just a, a tiny, insignificant city, hundreds and hundreds of miles to the east of Jerusalem. Why in the world would, would Peter be there? It's because he wasn't. This is all code, right? She refers to the church. And Babylon? Remember, he's writing to Jewish people. Babylon refers to Rome. Peter is hiding in the last place that anyone would ever even think to find him. He's hiding in Rome because the Roman church is growing by leaps and, and bounds at this point. And see, long after, right, long after the, the miraculous escapes, long after those things ended, the, the countercultural generosity and compassion of Jesus, that continued to erode. And that continued to, to, to get rid of the old ways and establish a new. 
and a better way. A new kingdom with a different kind of king. And see, here's the thing that's true about all of us. This is true of me, and I certainly, I assume it's true of you also, for all of us, right? When it gets dark, that's when it's easy for, easiest for us to actually be consumed by um, the, the, the darkness and the distractions and the uncertainty that we feel, Right? This is when I am most tempted to simply think about me, my family, my finances, my situation, the, the darkness, the uncertainty, the change that every single one of us have experienced. It tempts all of us. Right? It tempts all of us to take a defensive posture and close our hands and close our hearts. And while it is true that it's always wise to think about the future, there is nothing that is Christ-like about closing your hearts and closing your hands to the people around you, to the people in your family, to the people in your neighborhood, to the people in our world who need help, who need hope. Because see, listen, it is in the darkness, it is in the midst of the uncertainty, it's in the midst of the suffering, that is when our light matters the most. Why? Because that is when it stands in the starkest contrast to everything else that is around it. And so church, I'm sure you've heard that the darkest days are still ahead. I say, bring it on. Let's let our light shine now more than ever. Let's find ways, new ways to continue to love our world, love our community, love the people we work with, that we live with, that we're neighbors to in the name of Jesus. Let's remember the hope that we have and the reason that we have for our hope. Because if we get this right, right, people may always question what it is that we believe. Because, I mean, come on, a resurrection? Really? You've got to be kidding. But listen, they should always, they should always be envious of how well we treat each other and they should absolutely be amazed at how well we treat them. Because Jesus said, it is by that unique kind of love, that alone, that will let the world know that you are, in fact, his disciples, followers of Jesus. Heavenly Father, it is so easy for all of us to, to get consumed by the darkness, the uncertainty um, that we experience. Father, it's so easy for me um, to just withdraw and to get angry. Father, it's easy in these moments for us to break relationship with each other, to just think about ourselves. And the truth is, Father, that is... And that is what sin always does. It's what sin always has done. It's always divided. It's always separated. It separates us from you and from each other. It separates us from ourselves. And Father, we know that. You've told us that. We're experiencing that right now. And so, Father, in this moment, we're going to do what Jesus, what you've told us to do when we are confronted with sin. We're going to confess it. We're going to turn from it. 
Jesus, we're going to ask that we would no longer be defined by our sin, but rather we would be defined by your love. And so we ask that you'd hear us now as we personally and silently confess our sin to you. Heavenly Father, just as your love has reunited and restored our relationship with you through the life of your Son, through the love of your Son, Holy Spirit, I pray um, that for those of us who are followers of Jesus, that in this moment you would actually bring um, that same love, that same love of that we have personally experienced, that you would um, use us to bring that into the life of another person, that you would bring to our minds right now someone in our life, someone in our world um, who needs a dose of your love from us. Holy Spirit, I ask that you'd bring to our minds right now someone who needs an extra dose of hospitality from us in, in this moment. And Holy Spirit, I, I pray that you would give us um, the courage to act on what it is that you've spoken to us today, that, that you would lead us away from fear and you would lead us towards love, that you would remind us that we have nothing to be afraid of because we have already been forgiven. Our hope is in an already resurrected King, that Jesus, he is alive and he is the Christ. And because of that, your sin and my sin. Our sin has truly been forgiven. In Jesus' name, amen. It was on the night that Jesus was betrayed that he took bread. When he had given thanks, he gave it to his disciples and he said, take and eat all of you. This is my body. After supper, he took the cup of wine and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, take and drink all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's been shed for you for the forgiveness of your sin. Whenever you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat the body of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Take and drink the cup of the new covenant in his blood. It's been shed for you for the forgiveness of your sin. And take courage. Take courage because your Savior, He is alive. And He has promised that nothing can separate you from Himself 
He has gone before you. He goes beside you. He is with you. And there is nothing that you have to fear. There is nothing to fear in this life. And there is nothing for you to fear in the future because your Savior lives. Your Savior lives and he loves you. So take courage. Do not be weary. Do not be afraid. Do not let your heart 